0: Section seventeen of Prince and Heretic. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prince and Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. The Amusements of the Princess of Orange. Dupree, the squire, alchemist, and religious refugee whom the Prince of Orange was sheltering, had arranged the two chambers allotted to him as half shop, half laboratory in the fashion of Vanderlinden, the Elector Augustus's alchemist and Dupree's former master. This fellow, partly charlatan, yet genuinely gifted, and not without a wild flash of genius at times, and real moments of spiritual insight and exaltation, had contrived by the fascination of the supernatural arts he professed, and by his wit and reading and following the politics and scandals, the rumors and whispers of the hour, to attach himself a considerable following, both in the prince's household and among those who came and went in the palace and whose visits to the alchemist as he chose to call himself though he had little real pretension to any of the honors of hermetic philosophy were not noticed amid the manifold distractions of the huge establishment the princess of orange continued to praise most ardent patroness and most credulous dupe she spent hours in his laboratory watching him tell her fortune by means of melted lead by the markings in the blade bone of a freshly killed sheep, by the arrangements of strange eastern playing cards, or in observing the fusing and transformation of various chemicals into powder, and essence which Dupree's declared were the first steps to the discovery of the philosopher's stone. Anne was hot in this pursuit. The events that shook the Netherlands... The threatened upheaval which might overshadow her husband, the daily torture and death of heretics, the cries arising from the tortured prisoners, the regent's anxiety and confusion, the enigmatic attitude of the awful Philip, none of these things interested the Lutheran princess whose father had been so splendid a champion of the reformed faith, but to stand over glass retorts and glowing furnaces, to listen to the Frenchman's tedious and learned explanations of matter she could not even begin to understand, to meddle with signs and wonders, to attempt to raise spirits, to experiment with perfumes, dyes, and cosmetics, all this had a deep and irresistible fascination for Anne of Orange. And Dupre made his full profit thereby, for he obtained from her considerable sums of money, and when she had not these to give, jewels, ornaments, and even costly articles from her chambers. Rene Le Monde had known Dupre at Dresden, and then believed him to be a worthless, though cunning creature and she found it hard to stand by and seem him of the princess and mock the prince. But William and all of the members of the Nassau family who came and went in Brussels treated Anne and her doings with magnificent indifference. Dupree was beneath their notice, and it was not in Renée to play the tale-bearer and carry complaints of her mistress to her master, so she too had to spend the dreariest of hours listening to Dupree's jargon and watching his futile experiments, while the sickly smell of perfumes and the acrid odor of chemicals made her head heavy and feverish. But when the princess began visiting the laboratory alone and the whispers and laughter grew among her women, Renee went through an agony of hot shame and bitter indignation, compared to which the dullness of her former life was a piece. Anne was making a jest of herself, and Renee winced as if she had herself been humiliated, not because of Anne but because of the name she carried. Towards this momentous winter, when Brussels was brilliant with the pompous marriage of Alexander of Parma and his women began to openly laugh at their hated mistress. They had ceased to believe that she went to Dupree's studios solely to study magic and alchemy. It is to meet that young lawyer, Jan Rubens, they said, and made a mock of her behind her back. Renée, sick of living, sick of loving, weak and pale with watching the ruin of her people and her faith roused at this. The charlatan must go, she said. And all the women laughed again and asked why, if Anne was quiet with these amusements, wh- why take them from her? But Renee repeated, "He must go." She meant to take the desperate step of frightening the fellow into leaving the palace, and so closing Anne's dangerous means of communications with the outside world. A princess of Orange and a Flemish lawyer—it was impossible that she should stoop so low or he look so high. in her heart, Renee did not trust Anne. And meanwhile, if nothing else. She was trampling on her husband's dignity and giving cause for little men to laugh at him. It was a wild winter day when Anne, in a bitter and stormy mood, had locked herself into her darkened chamber that Renee went on her distasteful errand to the alchemist. Rain was hurled against the palace windows with a force that shook the painted glass in the frames and laying great pools beneath the swaying broken trees and bushes in the garden, until a great gust of wind would come and suck up the water in the hollows and dry the wet lashings on the windows and make the whole great building tremble. Then it would die away reluctantly, and another black cloud would burst, drenching all again. Renée shuddered in her worn velvet, and the van's woman went splendidly, as she passed through the magnificent corridors and stairways to the obscure chamber where Dupre lodged. To her surprise, as much as to her belief and satisfaction, she found him alone, though she had to use some authority to gain admission from the idle lad who kept his door. Dupre was in his outer room, which opened directly from the ant chamber. He was bending over an alabaster table set on gilt legs, which stood in the corner by the high window, and mixing several brilliant liquids by means of a long silver spoon. At the sound of Renée's firm step, he turned, and the sight of his face startled her for he wore a glass mask bound tightly round forehead and chin by straps of black leather. Mademoiselle Le Mans, he cried in tones of surprise and vexation, and quickly, covering his mixtures with silver lids, he took off the mask and looked at her keenly with his bright, tired eyes. You did not wish to see me, remarked Renée. No, replied Dupree, at once courteous and composed. You are wrong. No one could have been more welcome, but I am engaged on an important experiment and told the lad I did not wish to be disturbed. "'Oh, Monsieur Dupree,' said Renée, "'do not seek to delude me with these labours of yours. "'I knew you in Dresden.' "'He placed a deep-seated leather chair for her "'in front of the cedarwood fire, "'which emitted a perfumed heat, "'and he answered calmly, "'You despise me in what I do, "'but there again you are wrong. "'If I can make invisible ink, "'potent sleeping draughts, "'swift poisons, keen medicines, "'and cosmetics to keep women beautiful,' Am I not of some use in the great affairs of the world? Ah, you suit your argument to your listener, replied Renée. Since you cannot dazzle me with your magic and your alchemy, you speak straightly, and I am thankful for it. Blasphemy, neither magic nor alchemy, he returned thoughtfully. All miracles are possible, but our wit is so muddy we may not yet achieve them. I have talked with angels and glimpsed infinity as certainly as I have been drunk and a cheat. Maybe, said Renée. She sat still looking round the strange room full of curious pictures and diagrams, planetary signs, shelves of bottles and jars, rows of ancient books and astronomical instruments. She was tired, as always, and as always sat in spirit. She felt that what she had to say was in an effort difficult to make. Dupree came and stood the other side of the wide hearth. His long black gown, his flat velvet cap, the thick gold chain round his neck, his grave pallid and wasted face gave him the air of a scholar long clothed from the light but his restless hands and reckless eyes were those of a man in action you've heard what is taking place in brussels he asked keenly i hear nothing said renee but the last scraps of gossip from the pages and servants i never leave the palace and hardly the princess's apartments i can tell you this said dupree with an air of lively interest that the younger nobles bread road hoogstraten the hames organized a league against the enforcement of the decrees of the Council of Trent. They had a meeting on the very eve of the Parma wedding. What do you think of that, he added, smacking his lips. Does it not look like splendid times ahead? Confusion? Chances? War, perhaps? Was the prince in this, or Egmont, or Horn? Asked Cornet? None of those, but the Count Louis and Egmont's house is as full of heretics as Geneva, while our dear master is hardly a very good Catholic a very good loyalist he added with a slight unpleasant smile the waiting woman flushed and felt her heart beating fast i must come to my errand she said before we are interrupted yes your errand repeated Dupree keenly but first lest we misunderstand one another are you in the confidence of your mistress as much as anyone is perhaps replied renee he looked at her searchingly then his eyes fell the wedding woman was conscious of a sudden wave of disgust of a loathing for him all the pretentious details of this room so obviously arranged to impress the foolish and ignorant, and this feeling gave her strength and courage to speak. You must leave the palace, Dupree, she said. It would be better if you left Brussels, but this you must leave, and at once. His whole face paled and hardened into a set look of defiance and alarm. What do you mean? Who asked you to say that? He asked roughly. Rene rose. I speak on my own authority, she said quietly, but if you refuse to take my warning, I will go to the prince. Dupree winced so palpably, and looked so hideously alarmed that Renée was slightly astonished, slightly softened. Go at once, she added, following up her advantage. You have made enough plunder, and now you may try your fortunes elsewhere. Dupree rallied himself, his eyes flickered to the fire. What have you against me? he asked anxiously. You are a plague spot, a fester in this house, answered Renée. You seduce the prince's people with lies and foolishness. You bring those here who have no right to enter these doors. The princess wishes me to stay. Go to her with these complaints and hear her answer, cried Dupree with a sudden snarl. His words woke Renée's lurking anger. She flushed from coldness to heat. The prince maintains you, shelters you, saved you, not his wife, and your gratitude is to pander to her foolishness and drain her of her very jewels by your tricks and there is worse than that dupree she meets here with those whom she should not meet she degrades herself by consorting with idlers and the charlatan's company you know this again i tell you as a warning you must go who gave you authority to talk so boldly exclaimed the alchemist in a rage if my honored lady deigns to come here to watch my poor experiments what is it to you i will not argue on this theme returned renee But if you are not gone within the week, it shall be put before his highness that you bring disgrace and disorder into his house. A curious expression of dislike, rage, and half-amusement gleamed in the alchemist's narrowed eyes. But Renée, already hot, agitated, and half-ashamed of her own errand, her own plain speaking, was turning quickly and resolutely away. When a sudden sound caused her to stop and turn violently towards Dupree, it was a woman's laugh she heard, a high, shrill, long laugh. It came from the alchemist's inner room, and was unmistakably the laugh of Anne of Orange. In a flash Renee remembered the private door from the princess's apartments, which Anne had affected to have locked and hidden under the tapestries. In a flash she recalled the hours Anne had been seemingly enclosed in her chamber, and that it was all clear enough. So she comes thus, said Renee, with tears in her eyes. And you have been the go between. No one is here, no one, stammered Dupree, but he backed before the door, and he was colorless and quivering. She is there, and I will take her away, cried Renée. Who is with her, who? Go, go, implored Dupree. There is no one here but a young wench who serves me. Oh, gods and angels, he cried in real terror as Renée slipped behind him and seized the handle of the door. She thought he was going to strike her or use a short dagger on her, and she did not care. But the irresolution and the mocking fatalism that were so strongly in the man's character kept them from action. There is an end now, he said cynically, and stopped behind the great chair where Renée had sat. The wedding woman opened the door. The inner room was glowing with a rich firelight, which warmed the chilly gleam of the stormy daylight. The round table was set with a lace cloth and all manner of sweets, cakes, fruits, and wines, and before it on a long couch sat the Princess of Orange and Jeanne Rubens, the young lawyer. One of his arms was around her waist, one of hers around his neck. Their flushed faces were pressed together, and they were endeavoring to drink out of the same goblet, a rare thing of raw crystal in the form of a fish mounted in rubies and gold. All this Renée saw in a breath, and while she saw she realized her own utter failure— the uselessness of all her years of effort, of watchfulness, of endurance, of patience. She had been so outwitted like a fool, and had eluded her, and gone straight to that shame, that degradation from which Renée had labored to save her. Not even this service had she been able to render the prince, and that was the bitterest thought of all. She stood silent, holding the door open, and the two at the table stopped their foolish laughter and rose. Rubens dropped the goblet, The wine spilt over his crumpled ruff and his violet-velvet suit. "'Go to your room, madame,' said Rene, and spoke as a mistress to a servant. Anne was too frightened to answer. She shrank together as if she expected to be beaten. The young lawyer tugged at his sword. "'That fool Dupree,' he kept saying, that fool Dupree. Rene could see he was half-intoxicated. She turned her back on him and spoke again to Anne. "'Go!' "'Go!' she cried. Do you realize that you are playing with death?" This last world seemed to recall Jean Rubens to his senses. I am ruined, he cried. I have a wife and children. God forgive me. Oh, God forgive me. He turned his face away and put his hands before his eyes and limped towards the door. Oh, make haste, whispered René through strained lips. Dupree came forward. He was the most composed of the four, though there was terror in his eyes and his hands shook mademoiselle will not speak he said in a low voice catching hold of renee's sleeve a little foolishness a little indiscretion mademoiselle would not make mischief for that a little foolishness repeated anne vaguely she began to weep may i not have my amusements you are always hard renee do not be hard see said dupree in a quick eager whisper keep this from the prince and i will go away he will leave brussels Make no bargains with me, cried Renée passionately, exasperated with disdain of the cringing attitude of all of them, by Anne's utter lack of dignity, by the horrid sordidness of the thing she had disclosed, which sickened her as one might be sickened by lifting a smooth stone and discovering beneath a foul reptile. You will go, all of you, and at once. The young Fleming now stumbled forward into the outer room. He was a big, clumsy man, fresh-colored, blonde, fair-bearded, and blue-eyed his face was gray and distorted with terror he stood before renee shuddering like a lashed hound she noted with further contempt for his utter cowardice that he neither tried to bribe nor threaten her will, will it be the rope he asked or would the prince grant the sword for my family's sake go cried renee escape from here like the thing you are she caught anne's limp hand and dragged her to the door if he kills me said the princess sullenly he will take a life that is worth nothing to me. She's twisted round in Renee's grasp to throw insult at the two men standing foolishly side by side. And you could neither strike a blow nor say a word, tricksters and churls. She said nothing more while Renee led her back through the palace until they came to the great staircase window which looked on the courtyard. A cavalcade, muffled against the weather, was leaving the palace gates. My husband going to the council, muttered Anne. My husband... When they reached the princess's apartments, Renée locked the secret door and took away the key, and watched from where she crouched over the fire. "'I suppose you despise me, hate me now?' she asked. Renée turned her beautiful, haggard face towards her mistress, and for the first time in her long bondage she spoke what had ever been in her heart. "'I always despised and hated you,' she said. "'I knew it,' answered Anne apathetically, and sat silent over the warmth of the flames, till she fell heavily asleep. But the waiting woman paced her little chamber in agonies of torment, weeping unbearably bitter tears of pain and shame and unavailing regret. End of section seventeen.